So again, Sabbath. It's our topic for today. What I'm curious as I as I get going, what does Sabbath, and you can we can take this rhetorically, so but just think for yourself, what does Sabbath mean to you? What what words or images or actions come to mind, if anything? Just take a moment. For many of us, we think of Sunday, or for Jews, the Sabbath is Saturday, for Muslims, it's Friday. We think of a day of rest, right? A day for going to church, for worship, maybe. We might think it's family time. Or we might bemoan that our society just doesn't value this day like it used to, with all the kids' activities and everything. We might think of how exhausted we are by the end of the week and how our Sabbath day, we need that one day, Sunday, to, to get that rest we need so we can go back out there and... Do it all again. But I think that actually most of us Christians, the church, us churchgoers in America, we're really just as skeptical of this idea of Sabbath, of, of rest, as the rest of the world is. We're just as unwilling to truly give ourselves to it because it goes against so much, so much of what our American ethos is, which is more all the time, now, you're not doing enough unless you're dead, tired, exhausted, right? There's a sense in which we have to keep going until we fall over. Only then have we proven that we've done enough. I, too, have had to recognize how true this is for me the past couple of years, how much, how much difficulty I have truly embracing the invitation of Sabbath. So I want to begin our exploration this morning with a reading from Genesis 1 and 2, again, which introduces us to that story of creation and skips over all of those first six days, how God draws forth life out of chaos, out of the turbulent forces of death, and how good, how very good all that God creates is. Everything works together like a a web of mutual flourishing, a garden, There's no worry about tomorrow, about having enough, about all the to-dos, about whether or not we're good enough or people will accept us. Everything simply is and belongs. And then as we jump to the end of the story, at the beginning of chapter 2, Scripture says this peculiar thing that's easy to miss. Or I should say, the original Hebrew version of this text, the most ancient version of it, says a peculiar thing. It says that on the seventh day, God finished God's work and rested. But the scripture we read this morning says God finished in six days, six days of creation, right? Like six days of the week, the work week, and then you get Sunday off. And again, we, re- we remember that this language in Genesis is not a science textbook. It's poetic language. It's mythology. It's, it's making a statement about values, how to live in the world, even through this poetic language. Like us, the ancient scribes that interpreted this, translated it into different languages, from the Hebrew to things like Greek, well, they didn't understand this variation between sixth and seventh day, and they, they thought, you know what, we're going to fix the text, fix the Bible by, by changing the seventh day 
to the sixth day because that's when God finished creating. Again, the more common sense in their minds was to make it reflect our world. On the sixth day, six days of work, on the seventh day, God rests, right? So that God can go back out and then start dealing with a messy humanity. But God needs some rest first. But when the ancient rabbis picked up on this discrepancy, rather than fixing the scripture, they reflect, or, or to reflect our ordered world, they instead saw this as a paradox, as an invitation to uncover a deeper meaning. And so, obviously, the rabbis concluded, according to the original Hebrew version of the text, if God finished on the seventh day, well, then there had to be an act of creation on the seventh day. But it also says that the heavens and the earth and everything in them were created in six days. So what, what could have been missing on the seventh day? What did the universe still lack that God had to create, they pondered? They poured over the text until they found it. Ah, menucha. That, that which came into being, which God created on the seventh day, was menucha, an ancient Hebrew word that's usually translated as rest, but whose ancient meaning is so much more than, than we often let this word be. When we think of rest, we think of Sabbath, right? We think of Sunday. We think of that one day of withdrawal from labor. Work is the rule. Work is what gives our lives, meaning what shapes our lives. Rest is the exception. We, we take rest, and only enough rest, definitely no more than two days, otherwise you're lazy. We take just enough rest so that you can get back to keep on working more effectively and efficiently. That is what Sabbath, what rest is for. But as people throughout the centuries, like the great 20th century uh, rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who, who marched with the Reverend Dr. King for civil rights, as, as they have emphasized, the Sabbath is not a day of rest for the purpose of recovering strength for the forthcoming labor. The Sabbath is not for the purpose of enhancing the efficiency of our work, of getting us rested just enough so that we can get back to the grind. The Sabbath is not an interlude, but the climax of living. That is, God doesn't rest on the seventh day because God is tired from creating and needs a pause before going back out to deal with that messy humanity. Instead, the creation of menucha, of Sabbath rest on the seventh day, signals that it, that it is, as Heschel says, the climax. It is the purpose for which the universe, including us, were created. Which means, for one, that humans are not the climax. We are not the pinnacle of creation, much as we have spent history thinking that we are. We are not that which the universe needs to be complete. The universe is, is all right without us, actually. So what exactly is this menucha, this rest for which everything, including us, were created? Well, again, I think that 
original, that original image in Scripture itself is telling, that we might imagine it as a garden, as a web, the ecosystem that holds creation together, where the flourishing of, of the whole is inextricably bound up in the flourishing of each and all of its parts. Not, as is often the case in our web, in our world, where, well, we create structures in a society where a few get to flourish, and then a whole bunch, they can sort of do all right, and then we just sort of accept that, well, there's a whole lot of people for whom it just kind of sucks to be. It's just the natural order of things, right? It's this kind of rest, rather than the rest fueled by the anxiety and scarcity of, of having to get back to work, right? Like the end of a vacation when you're like, oh, no, back to that. It's the rest born of spaciousness, of abundance, of joy, of goodness. Those moments where you have nowhere else to be, nothing else to do, nothing that needs to be accomplished, where you can just take a deep breath. You can pause, you can stop and realize, oh, the world isn't ending. My incessant busyness is not what's keeping the world going. It, it doesn't need me to do that, where we can just be. I wonder, as I say this, what comes to mind for you? What kinds of moments does that evoke? I think of Jesus inviting us to consider the lilies of the field or the birds of the air. Or he says, consider a grain of wheat or the mustard seed of sowing seeds and of weeds. And I think that rather than being a, just a, a useful sermon illustration, I believe that, that these, that these uh, parables, these illustrations that Jesus uses reflect the rhythm of his life, reflect a Sabbath rhythm, that in order to draw lessons from creation, he had to have an intimate connection to it. He had to live his life in tune with the world around him rather than seeing everything as a tool, as something he could extract something from for his own use. And I believe Jesus calls us in our movement from surviving to, to truly flourishing to find a way to embody this same kind of rhythm. That, that there can be no true flourishing, certainly no real wisdom, apart from our willingness to embrace on some level, to make space for this kind of Sabbath rhythm, for noticing the overflow of life all around you, and the sound of rain or the smell of humidity as it's about to rain, in a bee covering itself in pollen as it moves across a flower, while sitting in your backyard, has anybody ever just paused to watch the bee? I mean, one of the cutest things I've ever seen. Or getting drunk on that pure joy of a child's laughter, right? Rather than missing it because you're sort of scrolling on your phone while they're doing their thing. 
I think it looks like being enraptured in the fanciful tale of an elder, even if it's a story you've heard 37 times before. Or an elder, an elder's openness to the new insights of a curious child. I think this kind of Sabbath rhythm, embodying it, looks like perhaps seeing a therapist or a spiritual director or participating in small group conversations like we've been having at church. These spaces where we reflect in in different ways on trying to undo deeply ingrained patterns that, that keep us from fully loving ourselves, fully loving our neighbors, fully loving God and creation. Where we learn, we we discern when to set a boundary as an act of loving ourselves, saying no, and, and also when to yield. Of learning when to let go of agonizing over whether or not what we did was right while also being willing to learn and change as needed rather than digging in our heels and getting defensive. To use an image from the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, menucha is the joy, the the flourishing that we experience when, when a community works together in mutuality rather than ego fueled competition. It's the integrated wholeness of body and mind and spirit where a community, a society reflects one body with many parts. And it's, it's undeniable that when your pinky toe hurts, it really throws off your whole walk. And now your hips are hurting and now your knees are hurting, right? Where we recognize that the suffering of one part leads to the suffering the diminishment of the whole. And likewise, where one rejoices, where one thrives, the whole is lifted. And that that is the thing about Sabbath. This vision that we're invited into isn't, isn't an image of something we achieve one day on the other side of all that needs to be done at the end of the week or at the end of our lives. We can rest when we're dead. The invitation is not merely to reach Sunday, a day of Sabbath before going back to business as usual, but for this day to be one, this community to be one where we are invited to build a cathedral in time, a time outside of time, where when we are in this space, we imagine, we embody what it might look like for the world to truly flourish. And then when we go back out into the world, back into the ordinary time of our lives, we seek to build these little sanctuaries, these carve out these little moments throughout the week as a reminder of that for which we were truly created. The vision of Sabbath is meant to reshape reorient the daily rhythms of our lives. How do we catch those glimpses of eternity, of of glory, even in the midst of the busyness 
of our lives. This is what I've had to learn throughout the past few years of the pandemic. And like the rabbis so beautifully articulated, it really doesn't come naturally. We really have to choose it to create it. And so I think it's a brilliant move on their part that it doesn't just, doesn't just happen. We have to choose it. And in so many ways, it's to go upstream against the current of our world. But life lived at a, a pace of, of constant exhaustion I've had to learn personally leads not merely to burnout, but burnout leads to resentment. It leads to increased stress and anxiety and reactivity, which leads to greater conflict that more easily goes unresolved because we just don't have the energy to deal with it. We end up getting stuck in these toxic rhythms that slowly suck the life out of us until that divine, that divine flame within us threatens to flicker out. The challenge for us, what I'm also with you in trying to figure out, is not merely how to schedule more vacations. The goal is not an escape from reality, again, so that you'd come back to business as usual. It's an invitation to live the daily rhythms of this life differently. The invitation is for this vision of those things that that actually create, actually nurture and enhance life, for those things to be at the center rather than merely those expendable add-ons like the arts that get slashed from the budget whenever, you know, time is tight. We think they're expendable. The prophet Ezekiel and the Israelite community to which he wrote, again, they profoundly, they knew this profoundly because of how much they had suffered, because of how much had been taken from them. They knew that the Sabbath rest to which they, to which scripture and our our ancient tradition calls us, is not, as Cole Arthur Riley so poetically puts it, it's not the reward for our liberation, not something we wait for, we lay hold of on the other side of it. It is the path that delivers us there. It will save us from ourselves and the unsustainable rhythms that our world demands of us. So lie down with me, she says. Lie down with me in the pasture where life is alive and growing with the unapologetic slowness of a blade of grass. Now, what will become of us, she asks. When I read this line, I thought instantly of that famous line from another poet, Mary Oliver, who who asks, tell me, what is it that you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Which she also asks while spending her day considering enraptured by a grasshopper. Tell me, she says again, 
what else should I have done with my day? What might become of us if we were to truly give ourselves to this rest, this right ordering that heals, that restores, that creates wholeness? Tell me, if you were to take seriously this Sabbath, this menucha, if you were to order your life around that which matters most, what might it look like? What would be different? What would you spend more time doing? What would you need to say no to? What would you need to forgive? Grappling with these questions in the everydayness of life, this is the invitation. May God give us the courage and resolve to give ourselves individually and as a community to these things that lead to our healing and flourishing for the healing and flourishing of all the world.